Hello everyone, it is I, Aban Khan, and I am joined by... Mini Panala. And we at Sainshia are finally back from our hiatus. Um, I would like to start this podcast off by saying, how is everybody doing? I hope you guys are doing well. Um, I hope you guys are taking care of yourselves. I hope everything is, you know, going uh, okay. It's been a crazy year, uh, but hopefully the next one will be better. Um, and I say this because it's actually December 29th, so if this episode goes up before the new year, um, well, happy new year's anyway. So today's episode, we decided to do something a little fun for our revival, for our return from our hiatus, uh, and we decided to focus on lymphocytes, because everybody likes lymphocytes. So I'm going to go ahead and do the introduction, I'm going to give you guys a little background information on lymphocytes. Um, and I guess the best place to start would be that lymphocytes are an umbrella term for white blood cells that include two kind of major types of cells, T cells and B cells, uh, pretty easy to remember. So B cells, uh, so their main job is to produce antibody molecules for antigens, um, which destroys invading viruses and bacteria. For those of you that may not know, white blood cells protect the body. Um, they are the immune response in the body, and so their job is to help us against invaders. Um, and so T cells, uh, rather than producing antibody molecules for antigens, uh, they directly deal with foreign material um, and they develop immune responses for this foreign material. Um, a little, going on a little further, uh, lymphocytes make up a portion of leukocytes, which are immune system cells that help protect the body against diseases, like I had just said. This may be something you remember from biology class, um, or if you're more well-versed in biology, you might already know this. Uh, so talking more directly about T cells in particular, T cells make up about 75 to 80% of lymphocytes. This is about the ballpark percentage that uh, people usually give for lymphocytes. Um, and they are generated in the bone marrow. Uh, and the rest of the you know 20 to 25% are indeed B cells. So very interestingly, uh, T cells tend to live long lives which is incredibly helpful because of their unique ability to tell the difference between healthy cells and abnormal cells. This is how they can tell the difference between invaders and your normal cells, because if your own cells attacked your body, it would not be a very pretty, uh, not a pretty situation at all. It would be very dangerous, actually. Um, and so like everything else in your body, uh, there is a balance. So there is a certain amount of lymphocytes in your body, and as such, uh, there are two different responses we can have to low lymphocyte or high lymphocyte count. So low lymphocyte count, when you have low amount of lymphocytes in your body, this undermines your ability, your body's ability to um, fight against invaders. Um, this low lymphocyte count can happen for any number of reasons. Um, you may already go ahead and presume that it's because your body isn't producing enough lymphocytes and you'd be right. Uh, or maybe they're being destroyed, which is also a plausible explanation. Um, but another explanation is they can be trapped. Um, and all of these are incredibly dangerous uh, because they increase the effect an illness can have on you um, and the longevity of an illness in your body uh, because these this immune response is responsible for taking care of it. Um, it's a lot like having a castle but no army to defend it because you know once the enemy has breached your walls it's over. After all it's not going to help you much if there isn't anyone there to defend it. And so that's a problem you run into with low lymphocyte counts, um, and that's why it's so dangerous. Uh, and they're very, very uh, important to your body. They're actually, I think, I feel like they're very criminally underrated. <laughs> um, that's just, uh, that might just be me, though. Um, so some interesting causes of low lymphocyte counts 
And just keep in mind, uh, if you do possess any of these, uh, this doesn't necessarily mean you may have low lymphocyte count. Um, we at Sciencia, of course, encourage you to open a dialogue with your primary care provider and ask them about any concerns you may have. Um, of course, these, this is just for informational sake. Um, there is no way you can Google your symptoms and consider that you have uh, low lymphocyte counts. There is technology out there to determine that for you. You don't have to do that yourself. So the this is what I'm about to say next. Uh, you know, just take it and be like, okay, this may cause low lymphocyte counts. So of course, undernutrition, um, things like the flu, um, autoimmune conditions, and steroid use can lower your uh, lymphocyte counts because um, all of these interact, of course, very heavily in your body, resulting in low lymphocyte counts. Now, on the flip side, high lymphocyte counts may not necessarily sound, or well, they may necessarily sound bad uh, because your body obviously should not have um, as many, but keep in mind, a high lymphocyte count generally can allude to a more serious illness or disease, or maybe you just recently had one, right? Because uh, if you had a recent passing illness, you're going to have a high lymphocyte count because your body's on high alert. So just because you have a high lymphocyte count, it might not necessarily mean, or it might not necessarily be a bad thing uh, because your body might be fending, a, uh, fending off an intruder. Um, and it's a good way for doctors to also realize what might be happening in your body, right? Because, of course, lymphocytes react in response to some condition. And so the doctor's next step would be to what is that condition? Like, what? why is that occurring? And so, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, it's for me. You got any comments, Manu? Uh, I mean, the only thing I can really add is uh, a lot of the things we talk about when it comes to lymphocytes is like, okay, what is their actual practical use? I think a lot of people actually get confused with the fact that most of the time they don't actually uh, have immune functions. So our lymph or our lymphocytes are actually part of lymph fluid, which um, actually have two other main functions other than immune. So the lymph fluid has um, a function of bringing fats towards places they can be digested or distributed through the body because fats are insoluble in water and so running them through the blood would actually be a very bad idea and um, another thing is that they also bring back uh, leaked fluid from the blood and this happens normally it's a process that occurs in every human but it's just that um, our bodies rely heavily on and so because of that there's fluid getting it back in but um the other thing i'd like to point out is that as you were saying um high blood cell counts or white blood cell counts yes, uh, especially yes. lymphocytes does uh sometimes uh matter in terms of like um cancers especially lymphoma those are um, big, big diseases that impact. Uh, they're the one of the few diseases that is prevalent in children. Um, funnily enough, oh, it's not funny. But um, normally, when you see th diseases such as like cancers, you normally see it in much older populations where there's um, greater chance of mutagens or something going wrong in the body just because your cells are aging. Um, but we're actually finding that. Uh, especially within the white blood cells, lymphocytes, um, there's a very high um, 
percentage of younger children who are getting it. And um, this is this is something that's been targeted for uh, many years in terms of research. Um, there's the Johns Hopkins, which is very famous for dealing with uh, childhood cancers and things like that. So um, I kind of just wanted to mention those couple things before we went into further detail. No, that was uh, that was perfect. Um, yeah, definitely another note, I guess, since uh, we have this dialogue open, and uh, that's why I think um, having high lymphocyte counts, especially like just the idea, I think it's definitely important because I f- believe this will be a theme recurring throughout this specific episode, is that um, our the entire immune response system is incredibly important. That goes without saying. Um, but there's a lot of like uh, working or moving parts in it that require it to work. Um, so it definitely is a very interesting topic, um, which is why, which is why we want to talk. Yeah. So, uh, would you like to? So we all, so we both went out and we kind of just uh, looked at different, um, just a different. Uh, the idea was fun facts about lymphocytes. So I guess Manu, uh, would you like to tell me what you might have found about lymphocytes? Um, so I, I did research, but I ended up coming back with one just really big fun fact. Okay. Which ends up being a research article (laughs) (laughs) fair enough so for those of you that have listened to one of our very first podcasts regarding cancer we brought up um, T lymphocyte uh, treatment which um, uses T cells and makes them cytotoxic which basically just means specific to killing cancer cells and so um, it was a mode for possible treatment especially with cancer which is so um, available to well it's so susceptible to change and so because of that, it's very hard to completely deteriorate it. And so um, one of the big things is um, trying to find a way where we can use alternative medications to uh, try to eliminate one of chemotherapy uses. And so normally when people undergo chemotherapy, it's a dual treatment option or dual treatment mechanism. And basically you use two different types of chemotherapies so that the cancer can't get used to one and then you apply another and then it gets used to that it's like a evolving bacteria so that's why you use dual processing but a lot of the time well actually all of the time when you use a chemotherapy you're also hurting your body cells and so especially with alternative medicine one of the main ideas was to uh, you know can we reduce chemotherapy to only one type of chemotherapy but also back it up with something. And this is where a lot of the T lymphocytes uh, research has come into where we can, can we replace one of the chemotherapies with something that instead uses the body's uh, mechanism of defense. And so what I found is it's not really along the lines of like using T lymphocytes, but the research um, specifically has the, had the purpose of creating antibodies or understanding antibodies that were specific for inhibitory checkpoints, and those are specifically PD-1 and CTLA-4. And these two checkpoints are, uh, they're basically checkpoints that we have in our body that um, help us to activate uh, CD4 and CD8s, which are T lymphocytes. And so what happens is in a lot of cancers, they produce uh, chemokines, which are, basically cellular mechanisms and what you can do is basically uh, what these cancers can do is 
through just random mutations, they can produce this one antibody that completely targets uh, these checkpoints. And what these checkpoints do is, because these specifically turn on T cells, if you block them, or sorry, to when these check uh, these checkpoints block T cells, so when you activate them, these checkpoints, uh, the T cells then get the message that, okay, I need to shut down and become deactivated, which is actually the exact opposite of what the body wants. And so uh, what these researchers did is they um, they looked at the mechanism and they used a mouse model. And so what they did was they created an anti-OX40, um, which is, uh, it's, it's a drug, but it's not used normally. It's a, it's a blockade, which basically stops something else from happening, kind of like our checkpoints. But this uh, anti-OX40 specifically works on this checkpoint, and so it's called an inhibitor of an inhibitor. Um, and they also have an anti-PD-1. And so initially, they uh, kind of only tested one at a time, and they didn't really see any uh, true efficacy. Um, but they found out a really interesting result is that when they used a combination of anti-OX40 followed by anti-PD-1, and only in that order, um, they found that 30% of the treated animals had tumor regressions, which um, oh. it, it seems very small, but the reason Aban's so, um, I don't know if I'd call that excited. <laughs> oh, well, uh, yeah, I guess you say excited. Um, I think it elicited a response for me because at 30% is a small number, but the fact that there was tumor regression in 30%, that's a good sign. And that's also with just using this as the base treatment. So they didn't use any other chemotherapies involved. And so what this it suggests is essentially um, an alternative uh, treatment to replacing one of those chemotherapies. So we can use one chemotherapy along with this possible treatment. And this isn't something that requires, you know, extensive, it still requires further research, but it's not like um, something we brought up previously with T lymphocytes where you're taking the cells out of the body, you're reprogramming them, which has um, a lot of chances for mutagens and mutagenesis causing unforeseen consequences later. This is just basically a drug that blocks something. And so while, of course, you still need to understand a lot of mechanisms, this is a much more uh, realistic way of trying to bridge that gap between uh, general medicine and very personalized medicine. And I kind of I kind of um, just thought it was really cool. No, that's definitely like super cool. I, I really enjoyed hearing about that. Um, it, it also kind of goes back to, so Manu and I took a the same cell biology course and uh, this last fall semester. And we, uh, in that course, we had a small cancer kind of topic at the end of the class. Uh, and the professor went over some new treatments and he had mentioned that um, uh, cell biologists were looking into using small molecules to interact with the cellular pathways to determine whether or not they can... Um, change the interactions between you know cancers uh and so the idea that we're uh rather than just again with the threat of mutagens um taking cells out of the body you know manipulating them uh, just treating them on the individual you know 
without threat of like any outside interference like that um i think it's very very it's good 30 percent definitely might seem like a small number but any progress towards not using chemotherapy i think is definitely positive progress um Yeah, I think uh, I definitely yeah, I definitely really like that article. Um, speaking of, I actually found uh, a study, right? Uh, so this study um, was very very interesting to me and something I got really excited about. Uh, and the basic headline of the study goes: uh, Researchers at the Francis Crick Institute and University College London have rebuilt a human thymus. Huh? That's right. Huh? I read that and I was like, Are you? really like that's if that's true that's super cool um and yeah so well that's pretty big um and so it the article uh the, what i read pretty much went um so of course the thymus is where the t-cells mature and then they you know do the work that they do um and the human needs it to survive right it's absolutely required for a human to survive especially with um to you know protect the human body uh and so they essentially built it using stem cells, um, and it, it really is phenomenal work. So, and if this works as intended, we can get closer to using an artificial thymus in transplants because, of course, a lack in T cells lead to, leads to immune deficiency um, and is incredibly life-threatening. Uh, so essentially what occurred was that the scientists rebuilt the thymus in the lab by growing thymic epithelial cells and interstitial cells from donated tissue from patients. So once that was done, that step kind of, it, you know, it's kind of par for the course, I believe, uh, so far as just like replicating and trying to um, transplant a artificial organ into, uh, into another animal. Um, but here's where the cool stuff comes in. Uh, Azalon uh, Ginovci, which I, if I butcher the name, I apologize. Um, he developed a new, rather new approach. Uh, and what he did was he removed all the cells from the rat's thymi. And so what they were experimenting on, of course, the thymus, uh, but only left the structural scaffolds that were already there um, and then transplanted the cells in the mice. So he removed all the cells in the mice to begin with. He only left the structural scaffold of the organ that was meant to be there. And he just transplanted the rest, the new cells, the, the stem cells that he had grown into the mice. Um, and so the importance of the scaffold is that you can utilize scaffolds from larger or different organs um, to contain these cells you're inserting. And they found that after five days, they had organs that developed to the extent of a nine-week-old fetus. Ooh, now this is cool. It's super cool. Um, of course, this is incredibly experimental, um, and it only works on mice. Uh, but I think the coolest part was definitely not only the fact that it worked, but it worked within five days and you had nine week progress of an organ in only five days. Um, and it was definitely really cool because I, I thought um, stem cell research is kind of kind of kind of cool. Uh, I, and I think um, so I know a lot. I feel like I see this a lot more often and I see my professors share the sentiment a lot, but it seems like artificial organs kind of might be the way to to go because um, the issue with uh, doing transplants is that we see that there is a great need for organs an incredible need for organs especially for people who need to replace their um their damaged organs and there's only so many people on earth who are one willing to donate their organ and two um there are only so many organs you can kind of just get especially legally right um and it's hard especially 
Absolutely. Compatibility is definitely another factor as well. And that's why you see huge lists, um, huge lists for like uh, huge waiting lists for people um, that need an organ or they need a specific type of organ. And there's no guarantee, right, that you're going to have that organ made available to you because it'd be a miracle if that were the case. Um, and so it's an incredibly uh, you see that it's a, it's an incredibly starved I don't know if that's the word I would use, but it's it's a field that uh, there needs to be some solution for, uh, especially because uh, some diseases uh, keep. There's one on the tip of my tongue I cannot call it, but there are definitely some diseases that would benefit from some sort of organ transplant. Um, and so this uh, this push right for artificial uh, organ transplants. Um, so th I think it's I think it's good. I think this progress in general is beautiful because. Uh, any progress towards um, creating new organs that we can use to replace old ones um, or non-functioning ones, I think works. Uh, and especially when it comes to something like the thymus that is, res that is responsible for so much in our body, um, I do believe that it's uh, what they did here was incredibly, incredibly cool. Yeah, and uh, just to put into perspective how cool that probably is, I know you mentioned um, basically they took off everything um, that made the thymus except for the scaffolding, right? Yes. So somewhere in there, there's all the mechanisms needed within that scaffolding to produce the thymus, which um, actually the fact that they were able to isolate it, obviously there's probably going to be a lot of research done to find out exactly what factors are present. But to show that this is possible is that I think it's a really big step, especially just because, you know, we're, like you said, we need organs it's um organ failures for multiple reasons um multiple diseases multiple life choices are a big problem uh no matter what country you go into and so you know having this sort of way of saying we can produce a baby thymus is mind-blowing especially because if you think about okay how do organs develop you have to go uh look back into the fetus because the fetus is basically the basic blueprint and timeline for all organ development and you see all of these factors all of these hormones that are affecting the growth rate and the actual um production rate of organs and these specialized cells and you see how specific everything really is so much to the point that even if we know what factors are there just changing the concentrations can completely result in in something completely different not the organ we want so the fact that they were able to do this um i mean props to them and uh it's optimistic for other areas of research where maybe uh, they could use scaffolding um, in a similar way because um this is a bit off topic from lymphocytes but i do know there was a huge problem with uh studying neurons previously and so what they did was um to sort of circumvent that problem is uh, they use glial cells um, or other scaffolding cells that, that normally maintain our nervous system and created a meat they saw that they could grow in a auger plate or a normal medium and so what they did was they made an environment where these then flourished and then trans uh, transposed nerve cells onto there and uh, found out it grows so those this uh, thymus regrowth is kind of in the step in the same direction and I don't know maybe it could create a lot of possibilities in other areas as well oh absolutely um and i think that uh 
definitely like there's um i know i've seen the sentiment a lot that like artificial organs are definitely like definitely needed to circumvent this problem um and ultimately uh you know solve it and i think um this and the uh what you had just talked about definitely aid in that progress um and it's really cool to see that we have so much uh so much hope for for that field because um there are a lot of people that do suffer from like not being able to go through a proper organ transplant for some reason or another um so yeah did you did you find anything else uh, any other article that you had wanted to speak on no to be quite honest i spent so much time trying to understand this one thing because there was there are a lot of things i had to look up um just to give some like background what goes into all this research is i i had to learn about these checkpoints so i had to i have a whole nother document just having so that i could write down information that helped me understand what these checkpoints were so <laughs> yeah, no, yeah you definitely very um, dense. yeah i could tell um you you definitely articulated yourself a little better than I had. Um, I, this was also the only study that I had actually really focused on because I felt that it was the one that probably I wanted to talk about the most. Um, I mean, yours was – that was really cool. Like, I find that fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I encourage everybody to search this up themselves because uh, it's, it's a very interesting read. Um, so if that will be all for this week, Manu, do you have any closing words, anything you'd like to speak on? Um. Yes. So going forward um, – like Avon initially said, our hi- hiatus is mostly gone. Um, we are both still, um, of course, pre-med students. We have a lot of things ahead of us, um, a lot of things we have to prepare with, prepare for. And so while this season, I guess you could call it, isn't going to be as consistent as our um, last previous set of podcasts have been, um, we are looking forward to um, creating new um, interview type podcasts that we initially had um, especially regarding the epileptic seizure and um, stuff that we had before and so um, we're looking towards uh, possibly when this next semester opens up uh, getting more interviews with more professors and more getting more variety of information and so uh, definitely look forward to that but also look forward to um, us doing a bit of our own research and having um, a bit more of talkative sessions like this and more um, more information in general with how we want to progress further. And so if that's all, this has been Aban Khan and Manu Panala, and the Scientia Podcast is back. <laughs>